0: Total praise. That's what our lives ought to be. If we are surrendered to Jesus Christ, following Him, honoring Him, living for Him, our lives ought to be a sacrifice of total praise. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. While you're turning there, I have been asked repeatedly and I have tried to answer everyone for those who have not gotten to me yet. My father's procedure went incredibly well. 90 years old, he has a new valve and he is at home, has been out walking for two or three days and uh, is gaining strength rapidly and doing well. I, uh, Got a blank stare from the doctor when I asked him, did you take pictures while you were in there? And he, s- he said, well, yes. And I said, do we have a portrait of Jesus? And uh, he just looked very bumful. By the way, I believe he's probably Muslim uh, based upon his nationality and the look he gave me. But that's okay. I know who lives in my father's heart. I know who lives in my heart. And I'm here to celebrate him today. I know that as you look at at 2 Samuel 24, you're going to say, okay, I'm looking at the title and I'm looking at the text and this doesn't align. This is kind of a New Testament sounding sermon and this is an Old Testament passage and you're exactly right, but I'm hoping that as we get through this and as we come to conclusion, you'll understand why we utilize this particular passage of Scripture. Before we read together, let me just... Let me run us down the trail through verse 20, chapter 24. King David sinned against God. And by the way, that was kind of a regular occurrence in his life. So David should be someone we can relate to, all right? He sinned against God. In this particular instance, he did so by taking a census, a count of all the fighting men of Israel and Judah. He numbered his army. Now, for most of us, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but I believe that probably the background of this is he did it as a matter of pride. He did it to prove his strength as a king and a military commander. Rather than boasting in his God, he was going to boast in his military might. So God sent the prophet Gad to king david and gad told david you've sinned against god god is going to give you an a choice here are three choices for you three options number one three years of famine in the land number two three months of fleeing from your pursuing enemies or number three three days of a plague within the land David had spent a good portion of his early life fleeing from King Saul and his armies and hiding in the hills and in the caves, living like a dog, as it were. He feared falling into the hands of his enemies, and so he refused and rejected the idea of being pursued by his enemies for three months. He feared what it would do to his people if there were three years of famine within the land. And so, knowing and trusting the goodness of God and His mercy, He chose three days of plague within the land. The plague came, 70,000 people died. The angel of the Lord came near to Jerusalem and was prepared to stretch out his hand against Jerusalem. The Lord was grieved by what was happening among his people. He grieved for his holy city and its inhabitants. And so God stopped the afflicting angel. And we're told that when the angel of this plague, the angel of death stopped, he was at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David pled with God to keep any more harm from God's people. In fact, he offered himself and his family to take God's judgment upon themselves. I want us to pick up the reading at this point. So if you've got your Bible open to 2 Samuel chapter 24, find verse 18. Once you've found that place, if you can and will, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of our Father, in honor of the reading of His Holy Word, and follow along with me. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, well, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered. So I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my Lord the King take whatever he pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Oh King Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there. And sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. Let me invite you, if you would, before we move from this reading, to look once more at verse 24. But the king replied to Arunah, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings That cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. And paid 50 shekels of silver for them. May God bless the reading of this word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this morning I ask you to examine our hearts. And not only to examine our hearts. But to lead us to look at ourselves honestly and openly. You've called us to follow. You've called us to obedience. You've called us to live as disciples. It is often costly. Father, many of us in this room have paid little. Some have paid much. The world around us looks to the church and wonders, is it real? Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Where are the Christ followers? Father, I pray that today you would give a, us a clear vision of what it means to follow Christ, of the investment that we are making not only in our lives and in this world, but in the kingdom of God that is here and is yet to come. Father, call our hearts to you in surrender and in obedience now I pray teach us from your word what we need to know this morning have your way in our lives for we pray and ask this in Jesus name and all God's people said amen you may be seated I love this passage of scripture What an amazing turn of events. David going to make sacrifices to God and offering to purchase Aruna's threshing floor, only to have that humble farmer offer to him as a gift the threshing floor, the oxen, and all of the wooden accoutrements as a gift to the king. David rejected this generous offer. He insisted on paying for the necessary items. And his his reasoning was simple. I will not offer to God a burnt sacrifice that costs me nothing. If it costs me nothing, it's not genuinely from me. If it's given to me as a gift from you, it's actually your offering, your sacrifice, not mine. As I was reading this passage, I thought to myself, man, here, here is a valuable life lesson. There is always a price to be paid with full surrender to the Lord. And I want us to consider this morning for just a few moments what that means. A lot of people play church today. A lot of people play church. They go, they check their Sunday morning box and say, I went to church. But they're not living their faith out. They're not really putting themselves out there on the edge and saying this is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to serve in the kingdom of God. This is what it means to say my life means little. The life of Christ is everything. And I got to thinking about this a while back. I was reading an article and and the the author was lamenting the fact that there are so many people who want the salvation that Jesus offers, but they aren't willing to pay the price of genuine discipleship. They're not willing to be different than the world and set apart and walk in a way that is otherworldly. So what does it mean? What is it going to cost us if we engage in christ-centered living i thought about it and i thought about it in the context of this passage of scripture and so even though we're going to bounce around a little bit this is really where we're going to stay but let me just share with you some thoughts that i jotted down in my own bible study time several weeks ago when i was looking at this passage of scripture the first thing is this that the cost of christ-centered living will cost you your pet sins now, I know when I say that, people say, what in the world is he talking about? What, what a pet sin. My pet doesn't sin. not talking about the animals in your yard, folks. I'm talking about the sins in your life that you get cozy with, that you get comfortable with, that you develop a blind spot toward. None of us like to admit it, but the reality is that sin is an ever-present danger in our lives. And too often, we get cozy with particular sins. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews referred to these as the sins that so easily entangle us. They're sins that we knowingly tolerate, get comfortable with, and eventually don't even pay attention to in our lives any longer. They say, Well, what's that got to do? David struggled with these kinds of sins. David struggled with it throughout his life. And I know that sometimes we say, wait a minute. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. He was. But part of the reason he was a man after God's own heart was that when he sinned and he was confronted with his sin and convicted of his sin, David responded appropriately to that confrontation and conviction. He struggled with sin. He struggled with arrogance. I don't know how you could be arrogant when you're a kid and you've killed a bear in a lion with your bare hands. I don't know how he could struggle with arrogance whenever the people sang his praises after he had slain the giant Goliath, even though Saul was the king. They were holding him in higher esteem than the king of the country. How could he be arrogant? I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You read his story and you see why this was a struggle for him. It was a struggle because he was constantly being exalted by the people around him for the feats that he did in the power of God that dwelt within him. It's a danger. you got to watch out for it. He was arrogant. Sometimes arrogance does other things. For example, in David's life, his arrogance led him to say, you know what? My army's so great. They can go out and do battle without me and they're still going to have success. So I'm just going to hang out here at home. His arrogance led him to be in the wrong place. You see, Scripture tells us that in the spring when kings go out to war with their armies, David was at home on his rooftop say, so what? So he was working on his roof. No, 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 no. He was on his rooftop. It was like your deck, but much larger. And it was from that rooftop that he looked down and saw a young woman bathing. And his arrogance led him to be in the wrong place. And being the king, when he saw a woman he desired, all he had to do was say, I want her. And in his arrogance, he did. His arrogance led him to be in the wrong place with the wrong person. Well, you remember he slept with Bathsheba. She conceived. And in order to try to cover up his sin of adultery, he committed murder. So you see, what I'm telling you is arrogance took him to the wrong place with the wrong person, the wrong thoughts, the wrong actions, and very, disturbing results that's why you get the old phrase that sin will always take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you're willing to pay from our passage today 2nd Samuel 24 David also struggled with pride I believe it was pride that led him to number his army to bring God's judgment upon him in this passage. And, and we need sometimes to stop and back up on case. That's great. That's David's story. What about me? What about you? What are the sins that keep us in bondage? What is there in my life? What is there in your life that would grieve the Lord? Ephesians 4.30 reminds us not to, to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. Have you ever considered, how would you feel if Jesus came back for you today? I was visiting with one of our members a while ago. Wouldn't it be a great day for a trumpet blast? Wouldn't it be a great time to just right up through the ceiling? Man, I think it'd be awesome. I'm I'm ready to go. I know many of you are. But how would you feel? Remember something, when He arrives, when He comes, when He takes us back with Him, everything's going to be revealed. Are there matters in your life that need to be changed? Sins that need to be confronted and dealt with? Are there matters of the mind or the heart, matters of your speech or your thoughts or your actions that would embarrass you if you were called to stand before God and it was all exposed? Those are pet sins. And living a Christ-centered life demands that we deal with our pet sins. We be willing to, to lay those things out before Him and let them go. Living a Christ-centered life will cost you your pet sins. Living a Christ-centered life will also cost you the world's acceptance. The world rejected Jesus Christ. And it will reject those who follow Him closely. Over the last several weeks, we've looked, we spent a couple of weeks in John chapter 3. And now we're here kind of finishing this little Conceptual min- mini series, if you will, but you remember in John chapter 3 and verse 19, Jesus told Nicodemus, The world loved darkness rather than light. Those words came out of the lips of the one who had told his disciples, I am the light of the world. Those words came out of the mouth of the one who had looked at those surrounding him on a hillside and said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father. You see, the world loved darkness instead of light. That's the reason that that John told his friends in in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love darkness. The world or anything of the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, whenever we're so caught up in this, we lose sight of that. And folks, that's not what we're supposed to be about. If we're Christ-centered, we're in the middle of this, but we're always looking to that. Following Christ closely. Following Christ radically will often lead to rejection by the world around us. And it's really a simple thing. I was taught this whenever I was a child growing up in northwest Oklahoma. Nature hates that which is different. Whenever an animal is born with a defect, it is often rejected by its parent. Whenever an animal is born and it is albino or some other anomaly, it is often rejected by the herd. I want you to understand that when you are born again into the kingdom of God, you become vastly different from the world around you, and it may lead to your rejection. The world rejected Jesus. If we're going to live Christ-centered life, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be Christ followers, we need to understand something. What that means is that we are going to live our lives or attempt to live our lives like he lived his If the world rejected him because he was different, because he was unusual, because he was out of the ordinary, and if we are living like him, walking in his ways, obeying his teachings, they're going to look at us and say, they're different, they're unusual, they're not like us. That's where rejection comes in. John 15, Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world because I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. That warning still extends into our time, into our culture, into our society, and into our lives. J.C. Ryle wrote extensively on discipleship. And he wrote about those who would choose to to live a Christ-centered life. He, he said this. He said, he must be content to be ill thought of by man if it pleases God. Basically, we're saying you get to choose. Are you going to choose to please God or please man? That's your choice. It's that simple. Choosing to live a Christ-centered life will cost you. It will cost you. It is going to cost you your pet sins. It is going to cost you the world's acceptance. But I also want you to know that a Christ-centered life will cost you some of your resources. Now, go back to the text. If you've got your Bible open, I want you to see David took action. The intention of his action was really very simple. He wanted to honor God by worshiping God. And so he was going to do that which God's word had already taught them they ought to do, which is to make offerings and sacrifices unto the Lord. And so he goes and he buys the threshing floor. He buys the oxen. He buys all of the wooden accoutrements, the, 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 the harnesses of the, of the oxen, he, the threshing sledges. He needed all of these things in order to use them in this act of worship. He would build an altar on that floor. He would use the yoke and the sledges for his fuel. He would slaughter the oxen and he would offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. He could have had everything he needed for that time of worship at no cost. This farmer, Runa saw him coming. He owned it all, but he said, that's my king. I want to honor my king. And so he offered all of these things that he owned to David as a gift. David refused. His reasoning, simple. I will not offer to God that which cost me nothing. He paid Aruna 50 shekels of silver, about a pound and a quarter of silver. Serving Christ will cost us. I've talked about this so many times across the years that I've been your pastor, but I, I want you to hear my heart. It will cost you time because... We have to put ourselves into the situations that are needed and necessary. It will cost you some of your talent because what God has given to you, He's given to you so that you can be a blessing to others and that you can minister to the church body as well as to the lost world around you. It will cost you the sharing of your testimony. Because the reality is that those of us who know Christ need to be able to share Christ with those who do not know. It's going to cost us some time. It's going to cost us the sharing of our testimony. It's going to cost us our energy and our effort. It's going to cost us all of those things. But I want you to know also that it is going to cost you some of your resources materially. Now, I know that somebody's already hitting the mute button and saying, no, I don't want to hear this. Listen to one more sentence and then you can mute me if you like. God's word speaks boldly about our money and resources. That's why I'm not hesitant or bashful to speak about money and tithes and offerings and sacrificial giving. Now it's your choice. But I want you to understand something. I know it's a highly personal matter. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you just need to stay out of my pocketbook. You need to stay out of my purse. I'm not there, but I want you to know, whatever you got in your pocketbook, whatever you have in your purse, God put it there, and He knows exactly what's there. What God expects us to do with the resources He places in our hands is very easy to find in in the Word of God. You don't have to look that hard. Here we read about the king's purchase, and he bought it all so he could destroy it to honor God. You can go over if you wanted to and you can look in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and you'll find Jesus sitting up on the side of the temple court watching the widow drop her mite into the temple treasury. He talks about it. Where King David gave a great offering, this little woman gave a couple of pennies. God did not exalt the king nor did he belittle the widow. And you can find throughout Scripture numerous examples of offerings, sacrifices that are made, gifts that are given, big and small, made to honor God. And here's something that you learn along the way. It's the condition of the heart and not the size of the gift that determines acceptability in the eyes of God. So it really isn't a matter of what you've got to give. It's a matter of how are you giving what you got. I tremble to say what I'm about to say next. But we in the American church know little of real sacrifice for the cause of Christ we have been blessed with more resources and more wealth and more abundance than any other Christian people in any generation in any land. Why? Listen, I spent eight years, I learned a couple of things on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. The one thing that has stuck in my head that I cannot seem to shake loose is simply this. As large as the Southern Baptist Convention is, as many millions of dollars come in every year, nearly 200 million, actually more than that when you take in all the special offerings as well, do you realize that if Southern Baptist people would simply tithe did you hear what I said? just tithe that the Southern Baptist Convention would probably have between 10 and 12 times as many dollars to work with as it does Do you realize if Christian people would just honor God with their tithes that the average church would triple its budget? It's costing. Why? Because God wants our heart. And you know what? The quickest way to find out if you got somebody's heart is get a hold of their billfold. We know little of what it means to truly sacrifice. And I just, I find myself wondering, what would we give? What would we willingly lay down if we were fully surrendered Christ? If, if we honored Him truly and genuinely and completely as the Lord of our lives? Which brings me to the last thing i got to say to you. Choosing to live a Christ-centered life will cost you your heart's throne. There's only going to be one king. It's him or it's you. Now, I understand that some folks are already trying to say, well, I, I have a distinction in my mind, in my thinking, in my theology between salvation and surrender. Okay? I'll play that word game with you for a minute. All right? Salvation. Let's just go down that track first. Salvation is a free gift offered by God to all sinners. Now, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. So we're all included in this offer that God is making. And we all need this offer that He is extending because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So we need what God offers. Salvation, the gift of life, is a free gift. If you finish Romans 6.23, it says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So basically what it's telling us is this. You can find this somewhere else. Most of you probably already know it. But it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. Did you hear those tiny words? Through faith. What that means, you cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot deserve it. You cannot be worthy of it. You can't say to God, look at me. How lucky are you to have me on your side? No. God gives it as a gift to those who respond in faith, which, by the way, it's faith that he gives us to begin with. So, salvation he gives to us through faith. What faith? The faith that says, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son. I believe that He died for my sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again. I believe that He has called me into the kingdom and into the family of God, and I surrender. Uh Uh-oh. We just crossed the line. I surrender my heart and my life to Him. You see, we just crossed the line. We just went from salvation to surrender. Why am I telling you that? Because I want you to understand something. If you are not surrendered, he is not your Lord. If he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. If he is not your Savior, you are lost. How do you know surrender? Surrender means you're willing to lay everything down. You're not worried about the cost. You're going to follow. You're going to obey. You're going to do what he commands you to do even if it is costly. And my friends, hear me. Discipleship is costly. It cost David some of his money. He was a king. Look at how much he gave for the building of the temple. Fifty shekels of silver for this offering was nothing. But there was more to it than that. It wasn't just that it cost him some money. It cost him his pride. This great king who said, I'm going to number my army and I'm going to just show everyone how great I am because of the men that I can muster into the battlefield. By the way, did you notice that's an army of 1.3 million men? That's a big army even by today's standards. It cost him a portion of his reputation. This man, after God's heart, had a propensity to do wrong. It cost him some of his family relationships. It cost him the lives of people who were loyal subjects, who who trusted him and honored him as their king. So what's the big deal? Preacher, why would you hammer us with this this morning? It's simple. It's simple. I want to remind you that discipleship is costly. Consider what Jesus said to his friends in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. We've all heard those words. I hope. And yet it never fails. It seems like there's not often a week, sometimes a month, as much as a month. But usually every week I run into somebody who looks at me and says, Well, you know, preacher, I understand that. And, and, and there's going to come a day in my life when, when I, I, I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to surrender. I, I, I'm going I'm to choose to follow Christ. Now, I want to tell you two fallacies to that way of thinking. The first fallacy is this. You don't know how many days you've got left. None of us do. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just simply stating a fact. Life comes through us day by day, and yet death, when it arrives, everyone is surprised. Can I just tell you something? I will promise you, those folks in Branson that boarded that boat the other day had no idea they were getting ready to take their last ride. They were not expecting to not return off of that lake. But God knows. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Let me tell you a second fallacy. You're forgetting what Jesus said. If you're going to be his disciple, you can't forget what he said. But You see, he told those folks, gather around him on that hillside one day, these simple words. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He didn't say seek last, or seek when it's convenient, or seek when you think you've got some spare time to to wrestle with it and think about it and and sort it all out. No, he said seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, if we're going to follow Him through this life, every season of it, if we're going to walk through however many days He has given us and we are going to serve Him and exalt His name and honor Him with our lives and our actions and our attitudes and our words, we have to be prepared every day to pray the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 26 not my will but thy will be done why would you pray such a prayer I was asked that question on Monday morning I prayed with my dad my family I told God exactly what I wanted to have happen. And I trusted God that that was what was going to take place. But as I concluded my prayer, I said, Father, you know what our heart's desire is. But not our will. Your will be done today. In the hallway, my sister asked me, she said, why did you say that? I said two things. I want what God wants. And number two, we're going to get what God wants. We can plead and cry and beg and carry on. But God's will will be done. If you're following him as a disciple, you embrace that reality. I want to ask you a difficult question. It's a question that I have to stop and ask myself periodically. Sometimes I have to just turn everything off and shut everything off and close the blinds and spend some time by myself with God in the dark. And Sometimes when I do that, God gets real uncomfortable with me. Every now and again, I have to ask myself this question, so I'm going to ask it of you this morning. Have you been offering to Christ that which costs you nothing? Sometimes we just do what's easy, what's natural. We come, sit in our chair, check the box, did that. Drop a little something in the plate when it goes by, did that. Smiled at somebody, patted on the back, said, man, I hope you have a better day than you had a past week. Did that. Are you giving God something that costs you? If you're not sure what you want to give or how you would give or ought to give or maybe even why you would give, let me encourage you this morning. Consider the cross. Of Jesus Christ. Consider what Jesus paid for you. Consider the price that he was willing to get. See what it cost him. And when you see that, consider how deep his love is for each one of us. And then I would challenge you. Choose to engage in Christ-centered living. It's costly, but it's worth it. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I want to do that, but I'm just not really sure where that all starts, I'm glad you're thinking that because I'm going to tell you where it all starts. You cannot engage in Christ centered living until you make Christ the center of your life. In order for that to happen, you have to embrace the truth of His holy word that you're a sinner, that the wages of sin is death but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He say, preacher, I'm not sure. You, you don't understand who I am or where I've been or the things I've been engaged in. You don't know the life I've lived. I'm not sure God will take me. Man, have I got good news for you. God so loved the world. That's all of us. Sinners and all. His word tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't dictate which sins He will forgive or will not. He says if we confess them. And I want you to hear this. It's not His desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He will take you He will change you. He will make you a new creation. And He will use you if you will surrender to Him. That's where it begins. And if you've never had that experience of confession and repentance and forgiveness and new birth, today He offers that to you. Call on Him. You may be sitting there thinking, I want to, but I'm not sure what to do. That's why we're going to do what we're going to do in just a moment. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand and sing a song of commitment. If you want that relationship, I want to invite you. Come down here and take me by the hand. I will not embarrass you. I will not put you on the spot. But I would love to share with you from the Word of God how you can become a child of God today and begin a new life. He offers it to you. It's a gift. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to pay for it. You don't even have to deserve it. Just receive it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you've already received that gift. So let me just ask you a simple question and I close. Are you living a Christ centered life? And if not, what do you need to do? Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of commitment. Why would you do that, preacher? I've been in some other churches. They're not doing that. That's okay. They don't have to. That's their choice. I always will. You see, when the Word of God is shared and the Spirit of God moves through His Word and touches hearts, it's only right that we give people an opportunity to respond to what they've heard and what they feel and what they sense God is doing in their lives. It's not a matter of wanting to stretch things out or embarrass anybody. It's a matter of wanting to help people get a handle on life and what God is trying to do in their lives So that they can move forward and become more like Christ. That's our desire today. So I ask you to ask God. If you don't know Him, ask Him for His gift. You want help with that? Come, let us help you. Brothers and sisters, ask Him what do I need to surrender? What do I need to lay down today? to live a Christ-centered life. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenges that it presents. I I thank you for the conviction that it so often brings. I thank you for the questions that it raises in our hearts and minds that drive us into your arms. And Father, this morning, I, I just ask you to shine a light into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, reveal that which needs to be changed that which you would convict of, that which you would call us to repent of. Father, have your way in our lives. I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you, that today your spirit would draw them, help them to see and embrace your gift. Father, for my brothers and sisters, for myself, examine our hearts, show us The truth. Convict us of our sin. Drive us to change. Not that we would be better, not that we would be perfect, but that you might be glorified through our lives. Father, I just ask you, take these moments. Do in each life that which would bring glory and honor to you as we offer up our sacrifice of worship, the sacrifice of our lives. But we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.